from a time when the total amount of computer memory in the world was 53 kilobytes to today. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is George Dyson, technology historian and author. Welcome, George. Thank you. Give us a brief summary of your background and as a historian and the books that you've actually authored. Okay, well, very briefly, I was born in 1953. There's an easy fact to remember, which is in 1953, there was a total of 53 kilobytes of high-speed memory on planet Earth. So I sort of grew up watching that grow. And my main career was as a boat designer and, and uh, boat builder. And my first book was about that, called Bidarka. And my second book was completely different. It was called Darwin Among the Machines. It was sort of, the, I think, the last book about the internet written without using the internet. It was actually written in this beer cooler I'm sitting in now. Uh, 25 years ago. And then came a book called Project Orion, which was about a classified pre-NASA space project, very ambitious to send a 4,000 ton ship throughout the solar system. And um, so my job was to talk to all the people who worked on it and dig out declassified documents. And that was followed by uh, Turing's Cathedral, my last book, which was sort of the uh, the book about the transition from numbers that mean things to numbers that do things at the end of World War II. And a new book that's not out yet. Which, which, which any spoilers on that? It's called Analogia, and it's uh, sort of a Western, and it's uh, a lot of it's about analog computing, vacuum tubes, and that kind of stuff. Exciting to see that come out. So there's a saying in history um, that, that history repeats itself. Is the tech industry old enough for any of its cycles to begin to replay? Well, yes, definitely. I mean, of course, it's, to me, the tech industry goes back to, you know, 60, 70,000 years ago, sort of the first big revolution in technology. And there were there have been a series of them, so very much so. We're sort of in this cycle that we call the digital revolution, but it's already, uh, in my view, cycling into something else and those, those trends certainly come back and I think it's a huge mistake not to look back because otherwise you know you you can learn a lot from looking at the past uh, you sort of predicting the future is a really a gamble but looking at the past is always productive what's the one thing that you think is that comes to mind that's actually is repeating itself that we should think about uh, well we're in the middle of a fundamental transition the transition that that I spent you know, decades studying sort of the transition from analog to digital, where we took all this analog equipment that was left over as war surplus from World War II, and then a, a bunch of various groups of sort of oddball nonconformist people, uh, including a lot of women, used that hardware and put it together to build digital machines, which was very revolutionary at the time. We're living in that revolution. But what we don't see is we're doing exactly the same thing now. We're taking uh, now we're living in this sort of sea of, of effectively war surplus free uh, digital equipment and the same kind of oddball eccentric groups of people are building analog computers out of it. And that I believe is the next revolution that we're entering into. Somehow we're doing it sort of very blindly and with the same problems we had with the digital revolution where it was, it was very hard for these early pioneers to convince people that well, you know, you could transmit voice over uh, digital 
transmission. Oh, you can't do that. You know, voice is analog. Of course, you can. Doing it right now. What are some of the big human and social questions related to technological advancement that we're overdue in answering? Well, that's uh, that's a big question. I mean, the the, the and of course we're we're suddenly sort of seeing all these social issues that these technologies that seem to just only be producing wealth and good. We now, you know, of course, it's very fashionable now to look at the dark side, but uh, that's that's always been true. And that's, that's again, where we have to learn lessons from the past as well as, uh, you know, looking ahead to, to not re repeat some of those mistakes. I mean, some of the, some of the best things we have came out of some of the most evil projects. I mean, that's sort of what my last book was about with how the, how really the digital revolution came out of the hydrogen bomb projects or the, this effort to build the most destructive device in human history produced also sort of the most constructive device. And so you can't, uh, you can't throw, you know, you never know where to draw the line, but it's important to, uh, you know, to stay on the right side. What, what should the young understand today about forging their lifelong digital footprint? And what should those who are more mature understand about their digital legacy? Well, the, the, you know, the interesting question now is, of course, what happens when you die? My mother died three years ago and I mean, all, I still keep her laptop plugged in, but I've, I haven't rebooted it. I mean, it just sits there. It's sort of this everlasting afterlife that uh, she she's fortunate to actually have a biographer who came in and uh, downloaded everything off her laptop. So, so it, you know, eventually it'll be in a, in a book or something and be really permanent. But for most of us sort of we're collecting these digital lives and what happens to it in the end, which is actually what Neil's my friend who was telling you has my kayak in Idaho. That's his latest great, you know, 600 page novel is about that question, sort of a digital afterlife. You, we talk a lot about your father, uh, but talk about your mother. What, what, it's, what happened in your growing up that she did or said that had such a huge impact on your uh, moving forward and, and being a historian? Well, my, it was my mother really who brought me into this world of digital computing because she was a mathematical logician. So she worked with Kurt Gödel and didn't know Alan Turing, but was right in the aftermath of his work came from Europe to America in 1948 um, when effectively an overstager visa was a, you know illegal immigrant and uh, her first job when she needed a job was uh, working for Remington Rand on something called the traveling salesman problem but was applied to uh, basically the question of whether you could have one guided missile that that would take out multiple airplanes what was the optimum path but they kept her in a cage because she was not American citizen yet. so sort of like a hidden figure she had to be walked into this cage every morning locked up to work on this mathematical but anyway so she, so she was deeply involved in mathematical logic and understood I mean a lot of what she did was sort of now we would call it computability theory and stuff like that and so so when I wrote my book she would mercilessly point out all the you know, technical errors. I mean, it, logicians depend on everything being absolutely pre precisely defined. 
whereas my father was a physicist, so he sort of came on a different side of things. But this world of computing is so deeply and intimately connected to mathematical logic, and I certainly got that, you know, that understanding from her. It passed on to my sister Esther too in a very diff interesting, different way. I don't think my mother would ever dream that her daughter would become a, you know, a venture capitalist, basically in the field of mathematical logic. It's a strange twist. Well, you know, I think all women are looking for role models today and certainly in technology and leadership in tech, and she was a pioneer. What would your advice be to young people in general, or maybe even just for young women looking for role models? Uh, just, you know, the classic advice of, of don't listen to the critics. Um, who will always be trying to squash your ambitions and tell you you don't you're not doing the right thing and that that has nothing to do with or it does have something to do with gender but it doesn't really matter what who you are or what it, you know I came from this very privileged background and still I had teachers who uh, I've got a note on my wall you know telling me I'm failing English and so I became a writer it just doesn't doesn't work that way you do do what you feel like doing and don't hesitate to switch, completely switch fields. If just if uh, one direction isn't going the right way, just just change. It's a huge mistake to think that you need to plan your life in some uh, you know deliberate way. In my my background, the horrible thing was that the education system tried to make you divide people into people who would make a living doing things with their hands and people who would make a living doing things with their minds, and that just pissed me off and so I, I really spent my entire life trying to prove those teachers wrong but I would I would do both I love your determination you know and our our history is full of of disruption and and you're talking about defying it and although this didn't always happen on a quarterly basis human history is full of social upheavals and disruptions so what lessons should we learn from those as we look ahead into the future full of potential upheavals and disruption caused by emerging technology? Well, yeah, ignore the experts. I mean, the classic, you know, again, the example that I spent so much time with, or, or one, there's a space project was one example, but the other is the digital computer, which came out of this, wasn't the, the, the machine called the Maniac, uh, that really is the archetype of, of every microprocessor we use, it wasn't built in a computer lab. It was built at this very strange place where nobody had ever built a computer. Nobody had actually built a laboratory. If it, if it, it could have been built at, at IBM or Bell Labs or one of those or MIT, but they knew how to build computers. The, the fact that it was disruptive was it was built by people who didn't know how to build computers, had a completely different idea of how to go about it. And nobody really paid them much attention, of course, until they got it working. Um, and that's exactly the that that will remain true that the, the the real by definition the innovations are not things you're looking for they 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 come from left field it's a huge danger for science distinguishing science from technology that there's increasing as science becomes more and more expensive it has to be reviewed beforehand and then you are only going to find things you're looking for because you have to you know, in order to get the funding, you have to explain what you're looking for, and then suddenly you're not going to find anything unexpected. You, you, know, you risk not having these fortuitous accidents that, that brought us so much, so many of the breakthroughs of the past. 
what realm of emerging technologies concerns you the most and what realm holds the most potential for good? Uh, right now. I mean, yeah. personally, of course, my, I'm, I've always, I sort of get obsessed <laughs> with something for a while and then I get obsessed with something else. And right now I'm obsessed with analog computing. I think that, that it's the big uh, game shifting change. It's, I think much more so than we ever really wants to talk about quantum computing, but just good old fashioned analog computing. It's, uh, it's a game changer where you, but nobody wants to hear about it because analog machines don't need programming. So suddenly this whole, you know, guild of programmers who I'm probably speaking to who write code, uh, it's entirely possible to have machines that, that don't use code, the brain, all natural nervous systems that do their computing without, uh, you know, they're not using digital coding. There's no algorithms, but we sort of worship the algorithm and think particularly in, in AI that it's all, uh, driven by algorithms, which it is on one level, but in, in nature, nature didn't use algorithms for that. And I think technology is going to follow the same path. It's sort of, sort of like the mice that grew up at the feet of the dinosaurs. It's the same way that digital came in and disrupted the analog world. Now the analog mice are going to come back get their revenge on the <laughs> dinosaurs. It's my fear. Revenge. Wow. So as a young adult, you lived in a treehouse that you built out of salvaged materials for a couple of years, actually. What Three life years. lesson, what's that? Three years. Three years, okay. Well, what life lessons did you learn or take away from that experience? Uh, well, I was 19 years old. I just needed a place to live. Now, if you say you lived in a tree for three years in the rainforest, everyone thinks you were you had some political agenda. You were trying to save the rainforest. But actually, actually I, I worked logging and you know I helped cut some of the rainforest down. I just, no political issue. I just, it was just nice to live in a tree. Now the train's going to go by. Um, so really I learned, of course, to be self-sufficient and I had an, an incredible amount of time to read and think. I mean, I, I read the entire six and a half thousand pages of Cook's journals of his third voyage. And I read you know, all of von Neumann's collected works. And luckily I had a brother-in-law who, who let me use his library card at University of British Columbia. So I paddle across the inlet, catch a bus, go into the university, borrow his library card and come back with another, you know, stash of books, go back to the treehouse and read this stuff. And I, I, I never have time like that anymore. It was, and that, that, that was my education. Of course, I left high school at 16 in frustration. But that's, that's where I learned what I learned. That was your defiant personality, George, but it, it didn't stop you. And hopefully uh, we have a lot to still let, yet to learn from you. If somebody wants to connect with you and maybe they want to learn more, I don't know, about building kayaks or get a copy of your book, one of your books, how can they do that? Uh, email is best, reaches me everywhere now, even out on my boat. Uh, and the address is simple. It's G Dyson, G-D-Y-S-O-N at Gmail. So that's fairly predictable. Probably could have been George at email. I, you know, my sister gave gave me one of these early adopter invitations, but I, I waited too long. I couldn't get George anymore. So. All right. Well, thank you again, George Dyson. And if somebody wants to uh, connect with me, they can do that. You guys can do that. You can find more of my interviews right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.